Okay, and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. We've got four great guests with us today and some very interesting questions. So we're going to be discussing the topic, breaking through game design barriers. And as usual, each of our guests have come with a question to ask and we'll discuss and go um, and talk into different points. But before we do that, uh, let's get some introductions done. So Patrick, please could you first introduce yourself for us? Certainly. My name is Patrick O'Casey. And I actually started out as a game designer for tabletop war games with Target Games in Edinburgh back in 1998. And then I moved to uh, working with feature film and TV drama as a VFX artist for many years all over the world. And that leads me to my game career again, which is when I joined the cinematics department at Ubisoft Massive in 2010 on the progenitor of the division. It was going to be a PC MMO back then. And then I stayed at Ubisoft and I moved to like an associate producer position and started taking on other teams, all the other disciplines of a game, as well as taking care of movies. And I've been working um, with many, if not most, aspects of games ever since, including cinematics. So having stayed with Ubisoft all this time, much too long night. Uh, I have been um, working on the Division games, Far Cry, Assassin's Creed, South Park, Watch Dogs, Rainbow Six, sure there's something more. <laughs> um, my official title is producer right now, but I've also been doing like directing and editing, writing, and over the last few years I've been getting back into design as well. That's me. Perfect. Thank you very much, Patrick. That's brilliant. Uh, Simon, let's come to you. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is uh, Simon Klintz. I'm an associate art director at Limbic Entertainment, so I think you never heard of that. That's a company. It's located next to Frankfurt in Germany. Basically, if you want to be precise, between Frankfurt and Darmstadt, which are two major cities. And it's a company about 85 people at the moment, and uh, we are producing mainly uh, city-building games uh, such as uh, Tropico 6, which we released, and we are currently working on uh, Park Beyond, which will be a park-building game. It's published by Bandai Namco. And uh, yeah, basically, I'm a 2D, 2D artist. Um, I really love designing stuff. I never decided on doing only 2D or only 3D. I, I love just design and whatever tools comes into my hand. Uh, I'm also doing uh, outsourcing, feedbacking outsourcers, uh, managing a small team. Um, yeah, what else should you know about me? I think it's, I really love like heavy machines, anything industrial. So in my free time, I'm doing industrial photography, spending weekends and even longer on industrial sites, photographing them, learning about how the tools work and then loving it if I can put this into practice actually. Um, I'm also here in Frankfurt in the steam train club as a conductor, maintaining a steam train, uh, working there on the workshop and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm at Limbic since, since five years now and uh, it's going great. Thank Perfect. you. Thank you very much, Simon. Brilliant. Uh, Alex, please, can you give us your introduction? Yeah. Hi. Um, I've been um, making computer games all millennium um, and uh, I've been a software engineer since the late 80s. I started on my genetics degree. I did a, a master's in AI at the turn of the century and um, uh, started off at um, Sony Psygnosis pretty much straight after that. Uh, I'm a software engineer. Uh, mostly I'm interested in uh, AI solutions which are data driven. So they, they're kind of tool sets for designers to control behavior and um, uh, the, the experience within the game. Uh, I've moved through lots of different companies, um, but these days I'm working for a company called Flavorworks, uh, who are making uh, kind of new uh, innovative um, IPs uh, using filmed content. There are in interactive narratives, um, and we're 
very interested in uh, bringing uh, the kind of narrative experience from big uh, big AAA games on consoles onto um, onto mobile as well um, by using some kind of cool techniques uh, with uh, with our touch video and uh, and we're also exploring uh, building new narratives partially procedurally possibly or using UGC with um, with content uh, from for instance kind of big open world triple A uh, Battle Royale style games, that kind of thing. So we're, we're, we're kind of exploring that space as well at the moment. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alex. And lastly, Tobias, please could you give us your introduction? Yeah. So, hello. Uh, my name is Tobias Storich, which I just changed last name not too long ago. I'm originally Swedish. So um, I'm, I don't have that long of a history as some of the others here. I have around 10 years. I started with uh, going to game development school in Sweden. Uh, around the 2009 or something, 2010, 2009, I don't remember exactly. We entered Make Something Unreal back then from Epic, uh, won that competition with a game called Epigenesis, which was a, if everyone knows handball, it's like a futuristic handball where you could push people with air as well. Um, was doing level design then, and in the beginning I was actually, we had a mentoring studio, Splash Damage at that point, and I actually got to talk with, uh, you know, Dave that designed a lot of the main Counter-Strike maps, like the dust that influenced a lot of my early level designs. Um, after that, I moved to open world games and multiplayer games, uh, which I now am. So I moved to Snow, which was an open world snowboard and skiing game, free to play. After that, I actually worked at Star Citizen, while Cloud Imperium Games for about five years on the multiplayer part. And right now I'm the lead level designer at Jaeger Games. Uh, they're based in Germany. We, we literally just released the cycle, uh, you know, a free-to-play game. But uh, I'm working on the second project we're doing, which is a mid-core mobile project, which is really early in development. And I think that's me. Fantastic. Thank you very much to everyone for the introductions. Okay. Well, now we've uh, established a little bit of a context for everyone, we'll move into our questions. So just to give you a reminder, the topic for today is breaking through game design barriers. And the first person to kick us off with our question is going to be Patrick. So, Patrick, please, could you give us your question? Sure. It's a long question, I think. Um, I want to talk about, ask you, get your experience on using limitations as a workflow or how limitations have uh, helped you be creative. I, I find that limitations are very much a part of any creative endeavor, right? Whether they are budget, time, staff, or the particular details of like a licensing deal, whatever. You could, just can't do everything. Not all, not even on the biggest projects, like not even on Star Citizen did you do everything, you know? <laughs> you tried. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but um, I think in many ways, especially when you talk to people after a project, the creative life of a game dev is defined by the limitations that they are set upon in their specific field rather than the opportunities that they have right and like once in a blue moon you'll as a creative person get a blank canvas where you're allowed to do anything but if you're anything like me i think it's pretty common you just get a creative complete creative paralysis when this happens <laughs> and limitations setting up limits for yourself to start getting creative is is useful i first became interested in this and i think it was 2003 when i saw this movie by the rather eclectic danish filmmaker lars von trier who made a movie called the five obstructions where he has another filmmaker called jürgen let remake one of his own films 
in five different ways, but with rather severe limitations set upon him, right? So, and several times it's limitations that von Trier knows that the other filmmaker hates. <laughs> and at first I thought it sounded rather preposterous, but I was surprised in that I thought these remakes were very creative and they were better than the original in many ways. And since seeing the, this movie, I've been fascinated by the subject and thinking about it a lot. And there's lots of examples in the world of art and music on the topic. I know that many visual artists very often use like limitations to kickstart their creativity, like using a really big marker to do broad strokes. They can't do details, you know, and um, it's like if problems are defined by what they limit and creativity arises when we have a problem to solve. If we have no problems to solve, it's hard to be creative. I'd like to know what you think about this. Do you have any ideas or examples from game design or maybe game development? Is there any way of being intentional around using this as a process or maybe has external limitations set upon your work, driven your creativity, in fact? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, really good one to start with. So. Alex, let's come to you first. You kick us off with your thoughts on uh, Patrick's question then. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, my first sort of instinct with that was definitely that um, the uh, constraints give you, often give you an entry point into thinking about a problem because it kind of focuses the mind just on that particular piece of the problem. And I do occasionally in my uh, in, in my kind of spare time do a bit of drawing and, and uh, in doing that, uh, I, that one of my favorite ways of drawing is the kind of continuous line drawing where you can't take the line, the, the pen off the paper, which is, which is, is great fun actually. Um, I think one observation uh, I would say is that in my experience, a, a lot of games to me feel very flabby. That is to say that there are a great many things to do in them, but there's not one, one specific thing to do. And if you think that the game experience is really about asking somebody to get really good at doing a certain thing, um, it becomes much more, um, much more pleasurable, I suppose, that kind of enforced learning. If that the thing that you're being asked to do is not too broad, it's quite quite focused. I'm, uh, I think Hollow Knight, for instance, is a good example of where there's, you know, there's there's not that many things you can do within the game, and it really concentrates as a player the play experience, which is which is really uh, important, I think. Um, in terms of the kind of workflow approaches, how you might use that, one way, and I, I think I, I may come back to this a little bit uh, more later on as well, is uh, in considering the kind of constraints that are imposed on the team. So, for instance, a good a good example is processing time. Uh, often imposes constraints on the AI because the AI has to kind of work within. You know, it has to play nice alongside all the rest of the game systems. So you have to be able to look at. Um, uh, will the AI work with reduced number of cycles, for instance? Can it degrade gracefully? Will it be able to uh, give the user a believable experience if they happen to be, they move into a crowd or something like that, where there were a very large number of agents having to respond rather than just one or two? So, and and I think to, to work with that, to go with the flow, one possible way is to just reduce the min spec of the of the device so that you know you kind of say all right let's can we work can we make this work on you know a really an ancient pc for instance or even okay we're targeting a pc and a games console what does it mean to target a mobile device on this you know how could, could you do it what would the game feel like so i think that's that's definitely one way of uh, of kind of really building that into your workflow you don't don't necessarily have to uh, to actually release a game that runs on the mobile, but I, but but I think that you know having that in mind and having some kind of uh, um, fallback positions in mind m might really help. Do you feel that this this sort of sharpens the experience, so to speak, rather than I think so. 
Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm not a designer, but I think one of the things that designers have to ask themselves all the time is, is this particular experience fun, you know? And if, if there are a great many pieces uh, to the puzzle, then that's, you know, you're, you're, they're presumably all competing with each other. They're, 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 you're asking the user to do a great many things at the same time. So, yes, I think that's, you know. Yeah, great, great couple of points there. Um, Tobias, let's come to you. Sure. Um, I think, First of all, what you just said, Alex, is a lot what I'm thinking as well, how it limits and, you know, it also gives you like, if you have a core that's really limited, you know, players, players tend to enjoy those games longer, right? Like if you have one core that they really can get good at, um, then you have other stuff that you throw on top of that. But uh, for me, it's as well, like trying to to consider my my words in one sense, but like, it affects me a lot as well, like for, for, for I'm just to give a recent example, like we're working on a mobile title here. I've never done that before. And it does with hardware that already has a lot of limitations as a level designer from an open world perspective compared to what I'm used to when I, you know, when I worked on Snow or even Star Citizen, like all of those, you have really different specs to, to look into. Um, and it, it changes like in a, and I mean this in a good way when you look at those and use those the design should be adapted to them right and that's what it forces me to do these limitations like I need to consider more of my level design and what's important for the player because I have a more limited space and it makes it complicated in one way and easier in another like they're both you know the, the two sides of the same coin in the sense of like yeah it helps me but it also obviously makes me think about different things compared to others okay can I just ask a question uh, to that yeah, of course. So now having gone through this process, right, first doing something like a Star Citizen and now doing yeah. this for a, for a level design, would you at a later date turn this around and as you come into the large project again, uh, actually uh, self-limit yourself in order I, to achieve, achieve something that you thought you achieved with the mobile project? Yeah, so in general, that was something... So I remember seeing in a talk, I think it was Jonathan Blow a long time ago talking about open worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was really interesting because he said, you know, I started with a square and I built it outwards. And most companies I worked for tend to do the other way around. It's like make mm -hmm. the biggest you can and then, you know, sure. build on it. And I think that limitation is actually something I liked more than the other way always. Though it, this is the first time where I'm actually putting it more into sure. practice. But yeah, I, I would definitely say if I you know, if I do another triple A PC or console game that's super, you know, not that limited as a mobile, I would definitely push really hard again to say, let's start with a small square and build outwards because it's always easier to expand than to remove already designed things to make them feel, you know, it might break the inclusion of the whole map where you delete something that feels really weird. So I would, yeah. So basically this limitation allows you to focus on something specific and then really make something around this, this, this focus and, and, and push it more into one direction that makes this one point uh, yeah. more interesting than trying to make everything great and everything uh, possible. It, it, yeah, and it forces that, like, because you can't, I think it's interesting what Alex said as well, where like when you have a game that has everything, they tend to not be as like, you know, you don't get the same, I guess I would call it flow in them because you're not limited. Like the, the scary, I don't remember which game it was that I started because it was a while ago where it was like, you can do anything. And I just like, yes, what do I want to do? Like, I didn't have that fun anymore, right? It's the, there's research on this, like people had what, 25 different lemonades to pick from. And that was worse than having just three because True. three was, you know, and I think yeah, that just, in any, in any, in any big game that I worked on, any triple A game that I worked on, 
like you make sure that the first 30 minutes or whatever you can't actually do everything <laughs> yeah you do you do limit players so that they yeah, have this sort of you guide them to have a certain kind of experience so no i totally get that yeah i think it's it's super important like from an art perspective uh even for the from the design and uh, i mean art is not only art it's also design it's also storytelling and everything and if you you start designing something and Let's just think of like how, how you do it when you're a child. You know, you sit on the floor, you have all your Legos around you, and you have all the possibilities in the world or seemingly in the world uh, to create something. And the first thing you is what you do is you establish rules so that you can start building your world. Because like I mean, world building is rule building is ba building barriers. Mm -hmm. I mean, gravity is a barrier, right? Yeah. And it's 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 like might be cool to have gravity, but it might also totally. I don't know, be, be a restriction and you want to fly. I mean, it, it's cool when you fly, can fly in a game, you know, it's, it's a, a lifted restriction, but you know, uh, I also think like, when you think of, think of superheroes, who's the, the superhero hero that can do everything? It's Superman. Batman is way cooler. He has way more restrictions, way more limitations, what he can do, not only from his technical stuff, but also from his personality and everything. And it makes him way more interesting, in my opinion, than Superman, <laughs> who can just fly around and he's the the yeah the great guy that can do everything and there's from my perspective it's, it's a bit more more boring i love it when there's more restrictions and you can use that to find uh, basically solutions to problems or restrictions you create it yourself so you create the restrictions onto yourself to find solutions for the restrictions you just create it and this for me at least makes interesting designs um, and of course with experience you you can get you can find interesting solutions to interesting problems you create And this makes then our people uh, give this wow effect for a design, for example. Think, wow, I would have never thought of a solution like this and of maybe even on a problem like this. Um, and therefore, I think that it's super, super important to have these uh, restrictions and to also be not, not afraid of them. So I remember when I was an intern uh, at, at the Delic and I was, we were working on a game and there was like a game designer coming to me and he had these crazy ideas on, on the, the perspective, on where the camera is placed and everything and me having basically not so much experience in the in the games industry i was like super afraid and intimidated like wow how can i do it as an artist and oh god how, how should i do it and at the end it, uh, i found always a solution uh, and it was like very very creative solution then and it made for great designs because normally the the most obvious solution you find to a problem everybody finds and then the design is boring Yeah, that's a good so, point. I like yeah, that. great couple of points. I love the point about Superman, by the way, Simon, because I don't think I've ever asked anyone who's your favorite superhero and they've said Superman. So, uh, <laughs> great, great point. Patrick, do you want to um, do you want to just sort of conclude? Obviously, it was your question, so just coming back to you um, after listening to the other guests there before we move on. What are your thoughts after hearing from the other guests? No, I well, I, I think that uh, I think that my intuition in that this is something that should be going towards more and doing more intentionally was probably correct. So I think I got some really good feedback here. Um, it all speaks to things that I, that I want to achieve in games. And what Simon said when this um, last point that he made, I think rings very true for me. So I, um, what can I say? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, great. I, I appreciate the question. It's a great start. Um, okay, well, well, we'll move on to the next question, which is going to come uh, back to you, Simon, then, please. So if you could uh, give us the second question of the day. Yeah, sure. 
So let's start with like when you start creating a game, you have this like usually it's a small team working on the idea of the game and then later the team expands, more people come in and with more people, of course, more ideas come in, but also so do not get, you know, all over the place with the ideas, the games tend to get more restrictive and the design of the games tends to be a bit more restrictive. There are barriers like hard decision, we have gravity in our game now. So this already limits your design. And uh, like often like a small team is already in the, in the very early production. And you have like all the ideas in the world because the game is not defined yet. Maybe there's an idea. We want Vikings in space. So great idea. And then you, you, in your head, you have all the cool spaceships that look like Viking ships and all that stuff. Uh, and then um, they might come to an idea. Okay, in space, uh, you have a like, like we need to design, we need to make it like a pixel art game and uh, the view distance is just 10 meters, whatever. And, and, and all your, your dreams about this great game you have in your mind, and I think everybody does, it's not limited to art, it's also level designer and uh, game designer, everyone has like his own perception of how the game will look like. And this everything, you know, gets more restrictive and, and sometimes you get, you know, you, you, you need to let go of your dreams because the game is not developing in the way you initially hoped for maybe and this is something that's seen all, all over again and even in the production there might be certain stuff or topics where we need where or where hard decisions need to be made and it might be very hard for a person to to really let go of this and they see it like this game design barrier in, in terms of a rule they might see it as, as something that's limiting their creativity or pushing them down so my question would be if like how you personally maybe take take this and get out of this you know feeling down if it comes with experience um or maybe if you had like team members who are really affected by this and i think there are people that get really you know uh, uh, like feeling down because of this um how you basically motivate them again to find the joy again in a game that might feel too restrictive yeah really good question simon let's uh, let's come to alex then first Ooh, me first again um <laughs> Okay, uh, so I mean, uh, I touched on this a little bit before. So we do get this as software engineers quite often in terms of um, the constraints of having to play nice with other systems within the game and not consume too much resource, whether that's memory or, or processing power or, or whatever. Um, and I suppose um, the from an AI perspective, we can play with ideas, for instance, in, in the same way as, as an art, artist might do uh, with level of detail. So um, we can uh, have agents uh, that are closer to or, or at least more visible to the player have more of the uh, processing resource more of the memory to do their reasoning or, or, or manage their behavior or sample the environment around them more frequently than players in, in, in the distance and having some kind of graceful degradation there um, uh, is also a kind of requirement of a level of detail because if you've got a, an agent in the far distance or isn't is in another room, for instance, it still has to behave rationally. Um, otherwise, or I mean, there are there are ways of cheating, but that's still that's still a, a, a behavior. So that has to sort of still work. And I think you know when it comes to, um, to motivating your software engineers, well, um, you, you have to. First of all, they have to understand this is how you make games. This is part and parcel of the thing that we do. So getting good at it and having a, a collection of solutions to these problems is part of their growth as software engineers. So, you know, I, I think that's the first uh, consideration. Uh, once upon a time, 100 years ago, I was working on Championship Manager with um, 
uh, IDOS. And there is a there's a really good example of uh, of a, a, a problem where you know on any day in the world there may be a hundred or, or more games of football going on. Uh, simulating a single game of football, hyper optimized, we managed to get it down to uh, to about two seconds or something. I think this was uh, uh, the early two thousands. Um, but um, how do you go about making that work for, you know, 100 games a day? Well, you can't have the user sit and wait there. So we came up with a really novel solution to that, which was that we would basically, across a weekend, run thousands of games with lots of different start, starting points. And we'd use the inputs of those games to train a neural net to recognize uh, how what what the inputs how they related to the outputs so that we were actually using the game engine to train this neural net so that at the end of it all what we were actually able to do then is say okay for a simulated match these are the inputs what's what does the output look like and we were able to just generate those and that was almost instant then so from from you know a really tough problem we got to a solution which was a very exciting solution at the time as well i mean you know it was kind of worthy of putting a paper together so um you know that was that was and that really motivated the engineer that was that was working on that as well so i, I think that's a that's a good approach i mean obviously it's very software engineering sort of approach um and, and you know the, <laughs> I appreciate that you, you guys are all designers, so. Um. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool, especially to, to, to like listen to you, how you say like, how you solve this problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Patrick, let's, let's hear from you. Sure, so uh, apart from, of course, reminding them that limitations are good for them, we already established this in the first question here, that <laughs> we should be grateful that all these limits have been placed upon them. Um, no, but I, as, a, as a manager, as a leader, I, especially in an evolving, game production you continuously setting expectations for the team and everybody not just the team but like the buyer or the leader or whatever is a good thing but especially for the team as well so continuous communication around the game because people tend to get very siloed very involved in their thing right and all of a sudden the game has moved on decisions have been made creative shit has happened um so having continuous communication around what is the game now is super important because it, it forces you as uh, as leaders as well to align on things right you can't have different directors being having their different ideas about the game you know what if you have a continuous team communication we continuously talk about this is the game that we're doing now it has changed these things change it, it forces that in because people have to refer back to all the time right i think it's and what you then that, that becomes an opportunity to challenge the team uh, when you, as you communicate you're saying this is how the game has evolved right how does this impact you right and uh that like how how you know and your 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 discipline or your quest or your feature or whatever, right? Um, it, you challenge them at this, this. It's a good it's a good point in time to challenge the team because it, it creates a sense of ownership with them that they they own this new solution of the game. Right? They're not stuck in back in that old thing that they had, but they become part of it. And in the end, nobody remembers whose idea was what anyway. It's games are team effort, right? Mm, amen. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, Tobias, let's let's head over to you and uh, hear your opinions on this. Yeah, so um, this has happened quite a lot, like um, for me. And I mean, in the beginning, when I was also very new, I also like it was always harder. I mean, one of the really early ones you you get pumped into yourself. At least I did from from all the people I've talked to that was always above me and taught me and whatever was you know that the kill your darlings sentence, right? That you somehow need to learn that you need to accept that this happens as well within game development. Um, but to help also like, you know, the, the, 
the source of conflict or well how to deal with it when when you have people that feel like this for example is you know the why is a big one i always felt that whenever you can explain it to them why this happened like in the in the so-called greater good right that will always help like they usually at least get an understanding for it then if then it's a question if they still agree with the decision. But, you know, a lot of people, when they look at something they fall in love with, they just look at it in a bubble, so to speak. And then it's like, hey, but look at these five other things that's like that we're trying to put into the same bubble, the bubble burst, like at some point. Um, so like that, that is usually one of the approaches. And the second one is, I mean, it falls a lot into what Patrick has said, where like find something within it that will motivate them like you know find something within the limitation that either challenges them or that actually gives them the like the push again to see something else with it like you know somehow tweak the the limitation to be you know that this person can like it again um that that is usually my go-to's in terms of it but also just general communication is super important as always like i think everyone has said it so far so it's like you know communicate when these stuff happens so it's not a oh i was out for two weeks on vacation or whatever and like the game is now uh i don't know uh, draw three in a row rather than like a shooter or whatever you change to like um, that's actually a good point i would right. like to quickly jump in that i think personally it hits you more when you're not being able to 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 shape it so for example like you just said you, you, you have something and it's all settled. It all seems to be nice. You're going your way. You have all the designs already in your head. You just need to execute them. Easy going. Then you're two weeks on vacation and something happens. You don't know if you come back. Everything changed. You have like a lot of restrictions. Your uh, Viking flying battleship looks now like a like a duck in a uh, bathtub, <laughs> you know, or needs to be yellow and quack. And then you're like, oh, damn, this is this is not good. And I think this is when it hits you the most. Like when you are able or you see the change coming, you are working on this change, on these restrictions, you see them coming, you can adapt, then it's a slower process. I think it hits you more when, when it comes like right at you, like a truck hitting you from the side. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's where I think the why is important. Like, so you can explain it to them, even though they were gone, the process. Like, you know, I'd also say if you do a game where I'm in a bathtub and a yellow duck, I'm buying it. I don't care what that is. <laughs> I'm sold. I just heard don't take vacations. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but you want the constraints. Take vacations, come back to more constraints. <laughs> great, great question. Uh, great second question, Simon. Um, and some really good inputs there as well. So I appreciate it. We'll move on then. Um, sorry, Simon. To, to have just uh, just a few more words. Yeah, on go on, go for it. Because, um, like, first of all, like, I think it's it's always important to, to see in this situation. Like, when you make a game, it's people working together and not depart departments fighting each other. Because from fighting, you don't make a game from fighting each other or, or just being into your department. This is also why this this uh, cooperating with other departments and speaking to the people have a good relationship with other people in the team is very important. So, like, even if there are no barriers and you're all going along quite easy then even then it's it's important to have some relationship with, with other people with other uh departments you know drink a beer with them it's much easier to discuss difficult topics if you know the, the, the people how they will react and how you will, will speak to them um of course when there's a larger company this will get all way more difficult uh than when you're like i don't know a five man five man team uh, uh yeah and like personally when i think from me 
Like if stuff like this happen, uh, happens, it still hits me every time. You know, I'm still like, oh, damn. And, but, but during the, you know, all the days and years, I learned to accept it and to see the positive in it. Because I know that there will be end, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. And you can push through it. Because from an art perspective, if something like this happens, it, it, it's not, I don't know, I, I think, don't think you're afraid of the barrier. You're afraid a bit of yourself that you, you know, you, you now have like a big challenge in front of you. And you are maybe afraid of that because before that, you had all the designs in your head and it was all easy. And now all of a sudden you need, I don't know, to create a design in the same time frame, which is, might be just a few days. And, but everything changed and, and you think, okay, but I, I can't, you know, I have all this creativity in me and I can't ex express it now. But I think this is a bit wrong. You can do it. You need to speak with the people, get inspiration, speak to other artists if it's, you know, too difficult. I think this is very important. Don't keep it to yourself. And also something I would like to advise, like for artists at least, it's that you don't avoid it. Like, like it's it's not good to, when you have such a chance, to just get, take the easy path out, take, hey, I, I, I'm, I, I'm blocked here. Uh, let's let someone else do it. Uh, because you need to learn that this comes at you and this will be, like in every project this happened to me and you need to accept it and you will grow from this and the more the more often you experience such situations the the more you can you find solutions and ideas on how to handle them and how to get better and how to push through them so mm. this would be an advice for me don't don't avoid such situations especially if it might be like your first time i think everybody is is, is afraid of limitations but at the end if you work together you can push through uh almost all of them i'd say yeah yeah patrick i'll give you you know just very brief time if you don't mind before we have to move on to just to come in on what simon said there i can be brief <laughs> i think um again from from a leadership perspective i haven't i haven't seen a situation where if the leadership were aware of what they were doing the decisions that they were taking and then they as they communicated the change they also made sure to mention all the people it affects right so they made sure that people felt seen so that yeah they People understood, they knew that you know they were seen and management were telling people, yes, we, we see you, we know that this is a problem for you, and therefore, of course, we will help you fix your thing. Don't don't be don't worry, you're not on your own type of thing. It's when that when it's done that way, people feel part of the team, they don't feel left alone, you know. I think that so having an aware management that knows the implications mm. of the decisions that they take, I think uh, solves this. Yeah, great point. And the same Tobias, just just briefly if you want to come in on that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I need, need to say even less now because Patrick has said what I, <laughs> what I want to say. That it's like, I feel like it's a lot, it's important a lot of time that the leadership management, you know, the higher are very talking very openly about why it happened and things like that too, because it comes with experience. That's for sure. Like, you know, it's harder, but it gets easier. So if the leadership handles it in a really good way and then, you know, it, it tends to be less fought when it's mm. great great couple of points and uh, i appreciate the question simon uh, really good second question so yeah we will move on then um alex could you please give us your question and the third question of the podcast sure um so this was kind of inspired by seeing uh dal e on actually on penny arcade uh led me there but uh, i was also aware of the kind of other other work that had been done from what are called generative adversarial networks so uh things like uh this person does not exist as well and it got me thinking about um you know it, some people might look at these as a sort of threat to uh to artists or to or to designers as well i know that for instance at queen mary there's some work being done on um 
on just generating new novel gameplay uh, from from scratch using similar similar kind of approaches. And at Flavorworks, we're kind of exploring the idea of uh, generating narratives by using kind of narrative components, like these kind of very very small pieces that you could put together, and that would allow us, for instance, to create like ongoing stories from uh, from characters within. Um, within like uh, 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 these um, battle royale style games or whatever, or or, or, or um, combine UGC user generated uh, narratives together to make a, a continuous and coherent narrative. So um, uh, I think that the these kind of tools can be actually very positive. I, I, I'm also reminded of the kind of stuff that you often see on like Reddit's procedural generation pages as well, where people are basically, you know, it's kind of a step up from making net hack levels and kind of rogue rogue levels or whatever building dungeons. Um, I know that Houdini is unlocking a lot of uh, a lot of this uh, this work as well. So. Um, I'm, I'm kind of asking you to reflect really on what uh, what do these sort of um, super powered tools unlock for you as designers and, and do they excite you? Tobias, let's come to you on that then. Okay. Um, I mean, yes, it definitely excites me. Like that that's just a quick one. Like, first of all, I mean, there's two things. Like I'd love to, if I could be in every detail of a level, that would be really cool at some points, but at other points, you know, not so for example but in general also with every world being bigger and bigger in a game i see these tools and how they become better just help me like you know and the other way around as well like you know we we define the tools right like the you know to set the rules for the tools so to say the limitations of them um and we're looking into that as well like for i think i have for most projects i worked on like and i mean star citizen is a good example of like they did planets with tools like with you know procedure generated tools they built themselves to make a full planet and then we started thinking about how do we now you know add stuff on top of that like as a level design point and things like that and it makes me really excited in terms of okay i can do a lot more and we can fin find ways to make stuff simpler the the one downside that i see is a lot of time when when people use this is that and this comes back to one of my early things i said where like it feels like they say hey let's do the biggest possible because we have a tool that can help us and it just throws everything together rather than you putting limitations on the tool which i also think is important like it falls within the same thing, you know, and Patrick's thing about limitations, it's going to come back to that always, but like, <laughs> this is the thing for me. And it, I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens with, you know, level design, for example, and tools in 10 years. Like mm. I can definitely see a lot of procedural stuff helping out and changing how we need to work and think about stuff in a good way, like as well. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, let's come to you. Sure. Yeah, I think we can't see them as threats because they will happen. So we might as well see them as opportunities, right? There's no no, no point doing anything else. Even, even if you were to feel threatened, that's dumb. You know, don't because it's going to happen. So whatever. Here's, I was just going to say before I say anything else, I actually downloaded the uh, the Dali 2 prompt book today made by an artist, uh, which is a great resource. Uh, and it shows you like a workflow for working with Dali 2 rather than just throwing out random phrases. And I, as I saw that, I, I realized that what will happen is actually what, what happens in all art is that things become formulaic, This, but it'll just happen much, much faster with machine learning generated art. Because what, what I hope this means in the end, because it becomes easier to do anything, cheap to do anything, right? It will hopefully lead to more unique expression. Um, that's what, what I hope for. Uh, rather than people just copying themselves, because it'll be so cheap and easy to copy, <laughs> copy each other. <laughs> um, so that hopefully it'll lead to more unique voices. Uh, it reminds me, 
I don't know if you ever read E.M. M. Banks, the Scottish author about sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, there's um makes me think of like that civilization is at a point where it's the end of it. economy doesn't exist, right? Yeah. The and, culture. Yes, exactly the culture. And when you're in a where and, and I mean essentially that's what AI does for us. Right, it removes economy from the from the situation, right? right? Right now, it's not like that, obviously, but I mean, it will. You know, there's this. I can't see how it couldn't in the end, right? And once economy's gone, it's. Um, I mean, then th that's the interesting part for art and creativity, obviously. You know, that's. I mean, I, I'm. It's scary, of course, it is, because it'll mean change, and change is always scary. But I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, absolutely. It's there's actually one thing that there's a question I can throw out here when I because I've been thinking quite a lot about this and playing around this with my in my hobby projects at home. Because I haven't been using this for work, um, like because of the data sets used, right? And because the fact that you throw things out there and they are processed in a cloud and they come back and you don't know who read whatever you wrote. You don't know if the, in, the image that you generated, who else will see that before your game is launched, right? And you also don't know that the data, the data stack that this thing was trained on, right? Did the people using it, training it, have the rights for that? Will it actually generate things that they didn't have the rights for? I've seen like uh, signatures and stuff like that be repeated, like art station signatures be repeated uh, on people's generative art, which uh, this can cause problems, obviously. So that's something how um, like generating right now people can create the data sets because it's not, you know, they don't need to be that big. But with time, it'll get crazy, obviously. So um, that's the thing. There's a thing, right? I don't know how big companies are going to solve. Big big companies that care about the rights for things, how are they going to tackle this, apart from just generating their own data sets? Mm, really interesting. Really, no, really interesting point. Um, Simon, interested to hear from yourself on this as well. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, two weeks ago, I, I, I tested Dolly, and uh, a week later, I tested Midjourney, which was a tool which was done quite popular. I mean, ArtStation, which is an art, art website, was full of images of people you know, just showing their AI-generated art. And I was like, okay, that seems to be new. Let's try it and let's see how fast you, you can create stuff. And you can create stuff pretty fast. And uh, how, what kind of results you, you create? Uh, so far, it's like, for me, it's a mixed result. Um, it's super good, or mid-journey, I'm just speaking of mid-journey now, um, to, to make a bit of focus, it's super good at creating, let's say, stock photo art. Probably because there are so many stock photos out in the internet. Yeah. Um, like if you do, I don't know, Donald Trump does something, I don't know, reads a book uh, in, in a bathtub with a duck, he, it will create it for you. No problem. And when I go and I want to create a battle scene, I wanted to create a giant mech robot made of uh, biologic material that is a bit translucent fighting an army of knights. I wanted to do this. And I even paid attention by the prompts to put in uh, movie titles because if you do battle scene, it will create everything. But you want this huge epic armies like a lot of the rings. So what you need to do is in this AI, you, you need to give them a lot of the ring scenes. Uh, give them, uh, I don't know, battle of whatever this castle is called in the, in the, in the movies, you know, and uh, uh, um, Kingdom of Heaven. I think it's also a game with a large crusader army. So you need to, so that the AI thinks of these screenshots or, 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 or images uh, of these big armies to create it in their own art, basically. Uh, what I didn't pay attention to was like when I set Mac and Knights, it was thinking of some sort of faction from the Warhammer 40k universe. So the, the Mac I ended up with looked like one of these Orc Macs and even had this like in Warhammer, some of the units, they have like a cross shape on top and all that stuff and some banners and it's all like a bit uh, like church related. Uh, design. I had the same on my Mac, completely not what I wanted. It was too specific. 
basically. If I give them make a 1970s cool sofa, it would create it, a couch. Really nice couch. Super cool. So at the moment, I think we are in a, in a situation where you can say, okay, you of course still need designers because you need to have these unique ideas because they rely on source material. And if you have an idea that there's almost no source material for, then you have a problem. Um, also, I saw that there's a lot of problems to create images that that basically belong to each other. You want to create a sequence, a story, but every image from the from the output would be with different lighting, even if you try to, to make it the same. So for me, it, it works very well as stock photos. When you need simple designs, quickly, you know, you don't need an you don't need to hire an outsourcer anymore to do some 10 bushes or 15 barrels or soft, something like this. This can do the AI no problem. And you can concentrate on the big problems. I see this as an advantage. Save time, you can do it yourself. Even game designers can do this themselves. Like you don't need to have like one artist always working with just one game designer who wants, hey, can you draw me another elven hat? And I want an elven ranger. And I want a second one. No, I want the eyes to be changed. No, the game designer can go there with the AI. He can do it himself. And this is a cool opportunity because it's also uh, like some sort of inspiration. And then the people get more independent. Um, I don't see it taking your job. And then there's also another thing to it. I think you also need to think like it's not just artists working with AI tools. Maybe AI tools can be also used in games themselves. Like just just think of a game that adapts to the player playing it. You know, a forever game. I don't know. The the AI is in the game, sees how you play the game, sees that I don't know you are not challenged anymore, and then creates unique challenges for yourself or even develops the game in another direction because it knows that you don't you play it in a certain i don't know other direction than the other players play it and then it, the game changes and you have your own game basically so this is something that is not in front of my of, of our doors yet but something that would be super cool in my opinion and i mean being all the technology rise and everything you know with the ai exploding slowly exploding but exploding uh I think it's it's super cool and at some point we will get there. And of course there will be people that are afraid of this. Like back then, concept art was just done on pencil. And then they did it digitally and then it's like, hey, it's cheating. And then people using photos in concept art, oh, cheating, you know, the art is dying, they're just using photos. No, then nowadays all concept art is done in 3D, basically. You know, just use Blender, uh, photogrammetry, all that shit together. And, and yeah, and for me, AI is just a tool to, to basically expand on it. It's cheating, but you still need a, a human to coordinate it, to get the idea. And you, like the AI at the moment can't do a, a, anything, everything. Yeah. There, there are certain ideas. There's just not enough, enough stock photos out there uh, for, to push into this direction, in my opinion. Alex, let's, uh, let's come back to you, obviously, your questions. So after hearing from the other guests there. Yeah, uh, thanks very much uh, very interesting uh, thoughts on that um, Tobias uh, I've I made some notes so I'll just come back to these um, yeah I mean uh, I think I feel like uh, seeing designers as kind of rule managers was a was a was a good good thought and actually it got me thinking I wonder especially with some procedural kind of uh, generation whether designers might also almost see themselves as explorers you think of um, uh, something like a no man's sky you know it would be cool if rather than just starting with the seed what you actually ended up go seeing there was that wasn't just a random planet it was one of about 50 that the designers thought were well, these are really good ones we'll show you these ones instead and i think that comes back to something that was raised i think um uh, later on uh, by by you as well which is it would be nice to be able to constrain these tools more so for instance yes we can make an infinite world but actually 
you know, here's just a solar system with nine planets on it, and they're the best ones that our designers could find, you know, using these tools. So I think that that's quite an exciting kind of use for these and a good way of really concentrating the, the algorithm um, significantly. Um, do you want to come back on any of these? Uh, the, I, I literally just agree. Like, that's how I see yeah. it helping us as well. And um, I know, like, you know, when whenever I, you know, dip my toe in this area of, like, level design, it was always this. I wanted, like, a tool that could create me something, but at were 50 state things, but I would still have to go through them and check, like, okay, like you just said, like, these are the five, like, the, we picked these, because, look, the, the made them really good and, you know, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. that. I feel like that's the way it needs to go. And like, uh, that's also why it will never go away. I mean, never and never. It will not in the near future, at least, go away that a person loses their job, just like everyone here said, because like you still have this control of it. Yeah, and from a technical perspective, actually, that uh, your view on what was good, if if you still had control of the algorithm, that would go back and reinforce the algorithm. So next time it would give you closer to the ones that you thought were good, one would yep. hope. So, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, Patrick, uh, the, the the Dali uh, two workbook that you were talking about really reminded me of uh, uh, when I did a, an, a, an art exam as a as a sixteen year old. I think uh, I, I I sort of created this um, this piece which had a lot of figures in it, and I was really struggling on how to do that. And the art teacher said, "Go to the library and get a book of uh, with just pictures of." people in uniform or something like that and I remember getting that and it was just like hundreds of pictures of people in various different positions and suddenly I had a resource that I could sketch from and I think that's very commonplace for artists to, to do that sort of thing so Absolutely. so potentially you know it, this is a tool for artists to actually you know to to, to work with I think um, and the, another observation you talked about kind of managing the rights of uh, of this where 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 uh, a very large amount of content has been used to to train your system. I mean, there, that throws up lots of different issues, for uh, especially uh, with representation. Uh, uh, you can you can see these systems being trained, and they reinforce, for instance, racist positions because all of the people were white that they used in the images, or or what have you. Um, but it did make me think. Actually, well, one good way of sort of tackling tackling what seems like an intractable problem of managing the AI rights is to have um, AI do it. So have a system which is going to go in and sort of uh, an artificially intelligent system, which is going to go in and look at it and say, actually, this content is not yours uh, and flag it automatically. That would probably be a, mm. a good approach. Sure. Um, Simon, uh, I think the um, the point about, uh, I mean, you touched on this as well, but generating content to use at, to feed your your work as an artist. I think that is, uh, which, which I mentioned, Patrick's, um, which was... Uh, um, uh, I, I think is a particularly useful and uh, very constructive, creative way of using these kind of technologies. I think also, um, and this is uh, this is coming from a programmer who's uh, who's lots of experience of programmer art. Um, it's uh, it's a great way of prototyping as well. So uh, if we wanted to just, you know, a very small team without much art resource wanted to just, you know, create something. Um, very rapidly than using something which will just give you approximations of what you might like to have at the end in, at the end would would be really useful as well so I think that's that's kind of a really strong area for it to go with as well 
Yeah, some really, really good points throughout the whole of that question. Um, so, well, we'll move on into our final question of the day. So it's going to come from Tobias. So Tobias, please, can you give us the last question? Yeah, uh, so it feels like my question is like, we, we talked a lot about the same things that my question asks in the same, <laughs> but in different questions. So I don't know how much it will add to the whole conversation. But in general, I was thinking how, you know, different disciplines break through it and you said, and I guess it's about using the limitations, like if you try and translate that sentence, right, uh, for different disciplines and how how they find it, you know, how they find motivation, the, the, the fun in it as well. Because at least in my experience, right, most people join games because they want to be in this creative industry. It's like it's and games is the one where they're going to and, and therefore you tend to want to go in that direction. Um, and I just want to hear if you guys have anything you know, about that one. I suppose, like you said, Spice, like we, we have spoken a lot around um, this sort of question, the limitations, but why don't we, we go into more how do you guys individually within your teams use that sort of aspect of limitations within your own yeah. experiences? So, Patrick, you know, obviously you, you brought up in the first question around limitations. Is there anything, you know, any advice or anything that you would offer specifically around how how in which ways you do that within your team? Uh, uh, I've I've led a lot of teams that actually were dependent on things that came before them, very very much so. Teams like animation and uh, cinematics, things like that, where a lot of the limitations were set. Like uh, cinematics and open world games is an interesting one, right? Uh, where you have to do this very uh, serious scene playing out, and in the background there's NPCs doing living their NPC lives. You know, telling jokes or dancing or whatever. Uh, you try to make a make a movie there with a certain kind of lighting in the well. It's an open world, so <laughs> you know the lighting changes and stuff like that. Um, or even like also coming back to open world things like metrics and games that set out limitations for you, right? So for for animators, it's metrics are, are are terrible because they're horrible when they're not there because you don't you know that they will come. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they do come, they, they usually change and um, stuff like that. It's, um, I mean, the interesting thing is that it, you could just bitch and moan, of course, as these things happen for your disciplines. But w w what does happen is that it's often where you find true creativity, right? And it's often where things like, um, okay, so you couldn't make uh, an animation set that fitted perfectly with all the metrics because they changed and whatever. And the that vendor from that place didn't deliver props that were actually all the right size. But from that, you get IK retargeting, you know. From that, you get those kind of things that, um, even machine learning stuff, that, that drive a technology forward, making it uh, more fun for, for animators to work in the world and stuff like that. So I think that, again, limitations can breed uh, interesting creativity. In coming up with technological changes or things like that. I still don't know how to solve the whole NPCs in the background thing. I, <laughs> apart from like put that, put all the important scenes in a cave <laughs> <laughs> or something. <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> no, really good points. Um, let's come to Simon. Is there any ways uh, you know in which you've been in teams that they use limitations or barriers to make the team, you know, perform better, make the game better? Well, I think every limitation makes the game better or often better as we established already in the, in the first <laughs> question uh, round. Playing, um, Simon, just before you go into that, playing devil's advocate on that, is there any limitations that you would say doesn't make the game better? Would there be something that you can think there of? Are some, some, like it can happen that there's a conflict. Let's imagine, uh, I don't know, you have a game 
and as a like as an art person, I would like to have like cool fog there because volumetric fog is just cool. And this is really necessary for this game's mood. And then let's say a game designer says, okay, but I want to perfectly see the icon down there. And it's also not possible to make it just, you know, shine through the stuff. And then you have a problem because it's like, I don't want fog. And I would say, okay, I, I want fog. Um, and if we like, of course, in this example, you could find a good middle ground. And, but maybe sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's also not possible because uh, maybe the, the people involved are so deep into this, their own topic, into their direction, into their head, that it's very difficult to find this compromise. And then of course it, uh, uh, it helps if you have like colleagues and you, you basically need to check back with them. Okay, I'm, I'm possibly wrong there. And if it's that, that is not possible due to whatever reason, at some point a decision needs to be made. It's still a game, it's still business. Uh, and uh, if two persons fight it to, to escalate basically to the producer, uh, and then the decision must be made and then you need to live at this decision. Um, but of course, normally it's just good to just take a step back from your own perspective, look left and right, look beyond the horizon. Um, a specific problem is never the end of the world and look, hey, maybe it's something cool and maybe you can do something. And I think the more experience you have, the more references you have, the more you talk with people about problems, you get more ideas. Uh, as an artist, the, the visual knowledge, I think, is super important. You know, go out, go to museums, see how other different problems are used, how uh, are solved, how other artists, uh, maybe not even realistic artists, maybe, you know, some that just paint certain colors, how they make great art and then draw from that. And I think you will most often find a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alex, let's come to you. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of related to something that we're working on at the moment. One of the things that the studio has been uh, exploring is taking AAA titles on console and putting them on a mobile. And that's obviously a considerable constraint. But our approach has been to um, to uh, capture, to basically capture the video of the uh, of the narrative. And this is basically so that um, the rights holders can, can kind of put the narrative that they've crafted into the hands of people that would never normally go near the game, maybe don't own a console or don't, don't play that kind of game, but they still think the narrative itself has value. So we would capture the content as a video feed uh, and then give them an interactive video experience of the game itself. Um, so uh, the, the very obviously very significant constraint of taking like a PS5 game, for instance, and putting it onto a mobile has actually unlocked for us potentially a new approach to really broadening the audience for a lot of, you know, AAA titles. So, so it's been, yeah, it's been quite fruitful for us. Um, I would say uh, I, 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 in my uh, career, I spent a little bit of time at Bossa, had a great time there and they have um, for their ideation process, they have game jams, every six weeks or so and uh, every one of their game jams has has always got really quite tight constraints I mean they have themes for them as well but it's it's often very very tight constraints and that I think that that really helps them in in, in being super creative with 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 their kind of content as well and I think you see that in the in, in the stuff that they turn out um, and bringing it back to AI and and, and software engineering I'm, uh, a little bit I mean, so uh, designers uh, have long had experience of, for instance, creating levels which don't have a very high draw distance to get around to the kind of um, the problems of rendering too much. And I think increasingly understand that because their agents are responding to sounds, for instance, might uh, in introduce 
um, stealth into the game or ways for the player to disable alarms. One of the real problems, remember with Metal Gear Solid, of course, you just walk away from the alarm and wait for everything to calm down a, a bit. But obviously that was nonsense, really. What you really want is for, you know, if the alarm kicks off, it's it wants you want it to be all over effectively so you know again you can create as a game designer you can create kind of uh ways that the player effectively if if they they fail if it's a stealth kind of title then then it's it 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 fails early rather than fails with a crowd of 50 guards showing up or whatever so Mm -hmm. you know um so there are kind of gameplay ways around that as well and obviously that then uh uh it's a given that your AI system has to not crash the machine or slow the frame rate down to a ridiculous level when 50 people show up. But ideally, you know, the designer is then able to create a design reason why you never get to that point. That's kind of, uh, and that then things become kind of really interesting. And I think that, and we've talked about this before, actually, that games where the setting or the level is intimate and small and you often return to it, like um, Half-Life, for instance, is that's they are the most satisfying because you feel, again, it's like this process of what is a game? It's asking you to become really good at something. And part of that becoming really good at something is to know your way around the, the, the setting. And if that setting is elegant and kind of well put together and it's got bits in it, which you clearly can't get to yet, but later on when you get the potion of flying or whatever, um, you, you can get to those and, and unlock other things. That, that's, that's great. I think sometimes you see, for instance, you, um, in levels, you can see something and you think, I bet there's an Easter egg or something to be found up there and I can't get to it. It makes you want to come back again to go up there and, and, uh, and get that. And that's satisfying. And I think that recollection uh, is part of the kind of the experience of, uh, of, of enjoying a game. So uh, I think those are, that, those are the notes I had. Yeah. No, really good points and uh, a really good way to sort of round off the podcast there, actually, Alex, as well. Um, Tobias, do you want to come back in on anything after? Obviously, it was your question. Just give you the chance. Um, you know, no, so. I feel like, I mean, I feel, again, like my question was a lot answered with all the questions as well. Mm. We kind of dipped into yeah. this topic a lot of times, so I, I have nothing to add. It was really good answers and really fun talking about all of this. So. Oh, perfect. No, it was it was a good question, obviously, because uh, we got a lot out of it throughout the podcast, and uh, I'm amazed that Simon managed to uh, talk about ducks twice in in the podcast at, at different I, points. Viking <laughs> ducks. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll take this opportunity then um, to thank each of our guests. So, uh, Patrick, Simon, Alex, and Tobias, thank you very much for being a part of it and for contributing to the questions and each other's questions as well. We've got some great discussions out of it. If anyone does want to join um, another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast, please feel free to reach out to me and there's plenty of good topics coming up. But for now, thank you and we'll see you next time. Thank you.